Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. We all know that perennialization, I don't know if that's a word, I just made it up, of agriculture simply meaning moving away from an ag system relying on annuals, plants that you plant and harvest in the same season, to a system which relies on perennials, trees for example, but also vegetables like asparagus and others, is fundamental. This simply from an energy efficiency perspective, let alone from a health perspective. Multi-year roots have a lot more time to absorb fundamental nutrients. So if trees are the answer, whatever the question was, how do we get millions more of trees in the ground? How do we finance them? And how do we make the key stakeholders, farmers that need to give agroforestry operators access to their land for 20, 40, or maybe 100 years, comfortable with these farming systems? And how do we get the other essential stakeholder, investors that need to pour hundreds of millions into an industry and a system that they're not really used to. Long time horizons, chestnuts, for instance, take seven to 10 years before they bear fruits, but they could produce for at least 50 or even hundreds of years. How do we get them comfortable with writing these checks? Join me today in a deep dive where the answer is always trees and the question is how we finance them. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in Regen Ag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in Regen Ag. Or find the link below. Welcome to another episode. Today with the president of Agroforestry Partners. They invest in agroforestry projects on farmland with the strategy of providing uncorrelated and attractive nature-based investment opportunities for investors. Welcome, Brett. Thank you, Cohen. Nice to be here. And this introduction came through Propagate, uh, friends of the show. I just checked before we started recording. I think we interviewed them in 2019 or maybe even before. Uh, it's time for an update. So let's, let's also make that happen. But they introduced us and I'm always interested to go deeper into the funding model or the finance model and the investment model around, around agroforestry. I think most people would agree. And if, if you don't go, go and look at the literature uh, that the perennialization of agriculture is imminent and fundamental. Uh, but the question always comes, how do you finance all those trees and, and all that time? It's almost like a time traveling, um, method you're trying to, to do, which is, of course, what investing is and finance is at the end. So I'm very happy to uh, double click on that and go deeper into that today. So welcome, Brad. Thank you so much. And to start with. 
a personal question we always like to ask. How did you end up focusing uh, most of your awake hours on soil and in this case, uh, root systems of, of mighty trees above it? Yeah, so uh, I've spent most of my career in uh, equity research, uh, working for investment banks as an Very analyst. Different. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a little different. Uh, I was on the dark side for a long time. Uh, I, uh, I was an equity analyst that was responsible for analyzing the food and agribusiness industries in both North America and the EMEA region. Uh, and so I got to know food and agriculture uh, across the entire value chain, whether it was meat protein companies or packaged food companies or grain traders and ingredient companies. Uh, it was a, a great career. I spent 15 years doing that. Uh, but in, in 2017, uh, I was really drawn towards climate change as, as one of the, the bigger problems of our time. Uh, and really got into sustainability. So I went back to school, uh, got a degree in natural resources to, to build on top of the, the food and agribusiness experience that I had uh, within uh, industry, uh, and then did some, um, some corporate sustainability uh, advisory work uh, for a couple of years before I was called up by one of my old uh, equity research clients, uh, telling me that he was engaged in this new entity called Agroforestry Partners and uh, needed someone to run the day-to-day -day, uh, operations of the fund. And the more that I learned about Agroforestry Partners and, and, and what its, uh, its, its people were, were doing, uh, it was a no-brainer for me. And so I joined in, in June last year of 2023, and uh, it's, been, it's been really exciting since. And was, like, in your 15 years on, on you, your words, the dark side, um, did sustainability <laughs> and, and some kind of long-term perspective, did that start to, um, like emission reporting, did that start to, um, slowly move into that space? Was it any part of your, your analytics or, or not at all? You know what? I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, people ask me that from time to time. And when I was in equity research from the early two thousands, uh, up until, 2020, um, ESG and sustainability were not a big part of what I was doing as an analyst. At that time, uh, the buy side, uh, you know, long only investors, mutual funds, and then hedge funds, um, they largely cared about uh, financials um, and the, the strategic nature of the company in the sense of what was it doing from an operations standpoint? And there was very little talk of ESG and sustainability at that time. I know that's changed since I've left the industry. Um, but for me, there was kind of this seminal moment in uh, 2016, uh, which really got me interested in, in sustainability uh, and climate change. I was on a, uh, a marketing trip with the CEO and the CFO of Tyson Foods, which is, of course, a, a very large uh, meat protein company globally. Uh, and we were riding around in, in one of the, the black cabs of London. We were stuck in terrible traffic uh, going to our next appointment. And we were talking about the state of the, the meat protein sector. And I'll, I'll never forget uh, the CEO, this, this uh, absolutely uh, amazing man, uh, Donnie Smith, 
uh, he told me he, he was talking about uh, the struggles that that he goes through and, and the importance of, of feeding a global population. Uh, it was it was very important to him. And at the time, uh, the meat sector was also really struggling with some animal welfare issues and some undercover uh, people that were um, uh, highlighting uh, these these terrible these terrible animal welfare issues uh, within meat protein companies. And you could tell that, that he really took that personally. It was it was really upsetting to him. Uh, and he really upsetting struggled. because he didn't know or he upsetting because they were uncovered uh, upsetting because he didn't know. Um, wow. Uh, he, he was really upset that those things happened, were happening within his, his company and, and that they were, that they didn't have the controls in place to, to protect, uh, those animals, whether it was chickens, uh, cattle or, or pigs. And you could tell that it really bothered him and it was something that he wanted to try and fix. And at the same time, he was, he was struggling, um, with the other side of, of how to produce enough meat protein to feed the world. And, and it really just got me thinking about, um, you know, I, as we said before, I was so used to analyzing these companies from a financial or, or an operations standpoint. And, and it just hit me all of a sudden, wow, you know, sustainability uh, is something that we need to be factoring into our analysis, holding companies accountable uh, for their for their impact on the world um, and incorporating that into analysis. And, and that's when I really started to go down that road. Yeah. And I can I mean. It's surprising from one side, but at the same time, um, those companies are so big. Of course, they don't control everything unless they're fully vertically integrated and they, they are really um, like operating at a different level, let's say. But at that size, um, yeah, you're, you're going to find things and, and you're not going to be happy about it, probably. And also when you're visiting as a CEO, uh, some kind of slaughter facility somewhere or production facility, of course, it's going to be the cleanest, the best run. It seems amazing. And, uh, but yeah, you have to probably spend a few weeks there to understand what really happens and, or go undercover uh, yourself to actually understand. And, and very few do. We had a discussion that interview will be out. Um, actually it is just went out now. Depends when you listen to this, uh, with Heather Terry of Good Sam. And, and she said, yeah, every, CEO of any food company needs to spend time on the farms or the production places and, and needs to touch the compost, et cetera, just to, to understand it will really fundamentally change the boardroom decisions. If you spend time on the ground and not just the shiny example that they want you to see, but the actual uh, production, because it's very ugly in many cases. And, and absolutely there is a need to produce for a price that is affordable and all of the feed the world pieces. But there's also a need to do it in a proper, a proper way. And most of it is just the, the ugly side of food and ag is very ugly and, and absolutely not, not pretty to see. And if you're in a cab in London and you go from one conference to the other and one meeting to the other, you're most of the time, you're just not going to see it uh, unless you really, 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 really try. And yeah, that's most people don't. Um, so that was a fascinating experience. And then you came on board June last year. How much did you know about agroforestry and, and how steep has been the learning curve? <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because uh, it has been a steep learning curve. I uh, I was a bit naive to think that I would just step into the role. Uh, I knew that I had 15 uh, plus years of studying the food and agriculture space. And I said, oh, I, I know food. I know ag. Uh, then you realize quickly uh, uh, when you're responsible for uh, soil and trees and, and explaining uh, the symbiotic nature of those to, uh, to other stakeholders that you don't know as much as you think you do. Uh, so 
Um, I've spent a lot of time over the, the past uh, six plus months uh, really getting getting into soil and agronomy. Uh, I've been really, really fortunate um, to have some amazing partners that are a part of agroforestry partners, namely Propagate, uh, which is a, an incredible uh, agronomy and, and farm services company that is uh, uh, focused on agroforestry. Uh, they have some amazing people as part of their organization, uh, and they've really helped me to get up to speed quickly on uh, agronomy, soil, and and the incredible power of trees and their root structures to improve our soils and and improve our food systems. And from a prop, I mean, we can ask propagate as well. But what was what made sense for them to set up this separate entity, participate in that? What was the reasoning behind uh, sort of placing it out partly outside their their core structure? Yep. So I I, I give credit to Propagate uh, all the time for this. Uh, I think that they were very very smart to set up agroforestry partners as a a separate uh, funding vehicle. And the reason is when you think about regenerative agriculture and agroforestry specifically, um, these are actions and, and processes um, that we're putting in place on the land. And in many instances, they take a long lead time to play out, right? It, it takes a long time to regenerate land, regenerate soils, and and improve the surrounding environment. And a lot of the new technologies and and approaches that are coming to market are doing uh, so in the form of startup companies and and propagate is is one of those they're they're a, a startup uh, and when you think about how startup companies traditionally raise their money in the venture capital world uh, you know VC uh, investors uh, traditionally don't have long lead times. Uh, they get excited as, as any of us when it comes to, to new technologies that can change the world or, or change a specific industry, but they don't have a long um, time horizon to realize a return. So I think Propagate went to market. Uh, they were able to raise some money um, from uh, the VC space. And I think they realized uh, along the way Okay, you know, as as we go forward and and realize profitability and and realize scale and grow our own company, we're going to need to look beyond VCs and and we're going to we're going to need to consider uh, a larger set of of funding opportunities. Um, and I think as they started to think internally about how to scale and and grow agroforestry in in the U.S. market first and foremost, which is where they're based. Uh, I think they started to think through different funding uh, options and they started to talk to some of our other partners, uh, namely Cargill and uh, uh, a firm called Walnut Level Capital. And together, uh, the three of those uh, entities created agroforestry partners to be able to uh, fundraise from all different corners of the capital markets uh, and, and bring a larger pool of money together such that uh, all of them could implement agroforestry at a, at a greater pace uh, and on a, a quicker time frame 
relative to what they would have been able to do solely through the VC markets, if that makes sense. Yeah, like how do you make trees eventually bankable? Like how do you get it out of the startup space, which of course will deliver the um, the support and growing. I mean, there's there's a lot of hands-on space there, but how do you raise tens, if not hundreds of millions, probably billions at some point, um, you're not going to do that through, uh, through a startup. In many cases, you're going to do that through fund vehicles or specific vehicles because the large institutional investors, the large family offices will just never pour that into a, or shoot it, pour that into a startup. Um, and so what, what is that current? What, what does your, you say, I'm, I'm responsible for daily activities. What, what does agroforestry partners currently does do? We're talking uh, beginning of 2024. Like what are the main, main focus areas? How do you, how do you get a lot of trees in the ground? Sure. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, right now we are in, uh, fundraising mode. Uh, we are actually about to, uh, sign off on our first institutional, uh, LP investor and, we're really excited about that. They bring a, a great name to our fund um, and, and a great network. And, and we're really excited for what their presence will be able to do for our fund insofar as bringing in additional uh, investors. Um, alongside that uh, fundraising work, we are uh, talking with as many farmers as we can uh, in the eastern part of the United States. That's our, our key focus area. And uh, as funds come in the door, we're taking those funds and uh, we're doing two things. Um, number one, we're, we're paying out leases to farmers. Agroforestry Partners uh, is a little bit different. We operate on a land lease model as opposed to a land purchase model. Uh, we believe that leasing land is a much more efficient form of capital relative to purchasing land. Uh, it allows us to take uh, more of the funds that come in the door and apply them to getting trees in the ground as opposed to, to buying land. And then number two, our, our land lease model uh, allows for farmers and, and landowners to participate in this in this work and, and hold on to their land and realize the incremental value that will be derived from doing this work instead of buying their land and, and incorporating it into uh a bank or a corporation. So we take that very seriously. We, we want farmers and landowners to be along for the ride. We want them to participate in the value creation from this work. Um, and so we operate a, a land lease model. And because of that, uh, we take some of that capital that comes into our fund and we pay out leases uh, each year at the start of each year uh, to our farmer and landowner partners for access to their land. And then, of course, uh, we, we take the remaining funds and uh, we, we buy trees and we stick them in the ground. Uh, so uh, at this point, we're, we're a couple years old. Uh, we've got uh, we've planted uh, over 60,000 trees on roughly 800 acres of land in uh, northern Kentucky and southern Ohio in the eastern United States. And uh, this spring, we're really excited. We're going to be planting uh, over 1,000 additional uh, acres uh, in that same hub, in that northern Kentucky hub. And so uh, going into uh, the northern hemisphere summer uh, this year, we will, we will uh, be managing about uh, roughly 2,000 acres of uh, chestnut trees uh, here in the U.S. on traditional corn and soy land 
uh, that's been pretty pretty beat up from just a corn soy rotation over many decades. And uh, we're running a uh, alley cropping operation on uh, most of that land where we have rows of chestnut trees. And in between those chestnut trees, uh, we're, we're running hay as a, uh, um, a second crop uh, for our farmer uh, partners to be able to realize income in addition to the lease payments that we make. Yeah, thank you for making that that visual, like the corn ro- the corn soy rotation and then going to, to these alley crop systems. That sounds like quite a, a departure from like, let's say before uh, you started working with, with the farmers, um, how easy is it for them? Like how easy is it to, to sell to them? Let's say the, the tree part, obviously the agroforestry, the chestnuts, but also the hay instead of doing, um, what is the decision of the hay, um, it compared to doing corn and soy in between the, the tree crops? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting when, when I joined agroforestry partners, I remember having conversations with uh, our, our team members at Propagate, Walnut Level Capital, et cetera, uh, about this concern that uh, farmers were going to be the bottleneck uh, for our fund, that we, that we wouldn't find enough farmers. Or when we were talking to farmers, they wouldn't want to do this type of work. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth, at least in our experience um, farmers are not the bottleneck. They, they want to do this work. They're interested in it. They care very much about their land. Uh, our biggest bottleneck has been uh, fundraising. Uh, if so you're saying 100... you could weigh way beyond the 2000 this year. If, of course, if you had seedlings and all of that, if you have the infrastructure, but if you had the money to, to lease more land, there would be more farmers or there are more farmers available to, to change quite drastically still from chestnuts and plus hay or from, sorry, so, uh, from a rotation corn soy to chestnuts and hay. Um, you say, yeah, we could, we could easily uh, go way beyond the 2000 acres. If we had a uh, hundred million dollars tomorrow, we could put it all to work. Uh, you know, our, our goal, like I said, we'll have about 2000 acres under management coming out of this spring. Our, our goal is to realize 10,000 acres of converted agroforestry land, uh, for this particular fund. And, uh, we would be able to, to do all of that tomorrow, or at least set all of that up tomorrow if we, if we had the funds in place. And to go back to your previous question about, uh, the corn soy transition over to a um, a hay chestnut alley cropping um, approach. Apart from the fact that it looks much prettier, obviously, but that's a different. Yeah. that's the aesthetic. Yeah, part. exactly. No, it's been really interesting in talking to our main uh, farmer partner in northern Kentucky. Um, he's been an incredible partner, and just speaking with him on a day-to-day basis or in person on, on the farm tours that we, that we do periodically. Um, he, he's very aware of what's been happening to his soil in recent decades, uh, as he monocrops corn and, and soy on, on thousands of acres of land. And when, when our partner Cargill, uh, approached him and, and, uh, set, set us up together to, to talk, um, he was not only interested in the um, income generating opportunities that, that could occur from this work, 
but he was very much uh, interested in the nature-based returns that, that could accrue from this as well. And when you add it all up together, when you consider the, the um, annual lease payments that we make to him, uh, plus... Which are basically uh, for under the tree lines, like it's the piece of land or it's for the full farm or how do you, how does that work? Yes. Yeah, so we, um, sometimes we will lease, uh, entire fields or farms. And then sometimes we will lease, mm-hmm. uh, a portion of a field or a farm so that the farmer can, uh, keep a certain amount of land in traditional row crops. It, it really depends. Sorry, um, coming back to your, I interrupted you where you added all up. Yeah. What's that? I'm sorry, I interrupted your your train of thought. When you add it all up for a farmer, yeah, yeah. So uh, when you add it all up for a farmer, it's really interesting. Uh, consider that uh, farmers here in the U.S., traditional row crop farmers over corn and soy, after land costs, they might make anywhere from you know fifty to three hundred dollars an acre uh, profit farming corn and soy here in the US. Um, We pay our farmers a very competitive lease rate. We pay our farmers about $200 to $300 an acre uh, for access to their land. And then, like I said, um, right now in the the hay chestnut um, alley crop uh, projects that we're implementing, uh, our farmers also get to run hay in the alleyways uh, of, of our chestnut trees. Um, and in the money that they can make from hay right now, combined with the lease payments that we make to them, many times it's, it's more advantageous for them to join our, our chestnut hay uh, projects relative to the corn and, and bean farming that they were doing. And uh, they don't have to deal with the U.S. government as much when it comes to crop insurance. Uh, they're rehabilitating their land in the process. Um, there, there are many financial and nature-related benefits for them to, to do this and join us. And on top of all of that, they get to keep control of their land, which is really important to them. So we really feel like we, we bring a win-win-win to the marketplace, a win for the farmers, uh, a win for investors, and and a win for the environment and climate. And and the last thing I'll just add is, you know, hay, in my opinion, is going to become a very important crop going forward. Um, When you consider the the nutrition benefits that accrue to livestock from eating grass relative to grain, uh, and then also consider some of the, the climactic impacts on just grasslands around the world, uh, hay, in my opinion, is going to become a very, very important crop in coming decades. And I think that our farmer partners are realizing that the value that they can get from uh, running hay in between our alley crop systems. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? we have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, I want to double click on that in a second, but one uh, step back, like I'm also imagining your leases as we're talking trees are long-term. 
it's not that you you change your mind let's move the chestnut somewhere else because that's not going to happen um so there is a sense of security there of course they can also not change their mind overnight and say oh, i actually don't like trees um on my my land so there's a but there's there's a long-termism there that that and of course the soil in around and and like closer to the tree lanes are uh, are going to be fundamentally different uh, in a couple of years compared to or actually in year two probably already um so that long-termism i think is is going to be interesting as well and then the, the hay peas like our farmers starting to run animals in between as well coming back to the tyson discussion before um like are they leaving it as grass and not harvesting it as hay and, and going into a silver pasture system do you see things like that happening oh it's 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 such a great point um to step back real quick and just address the lease point it, it's a great point you know we we set up an initial 20-year lease with our farmer uh landowner partners and then uh we have the ability after 20 years both parties to uh to to um, renew uh for another 20 years after that and, and we can repeat that process uh four times going forward for for a total of 100 years if the farmer or the landowner uh wants to be involved that long but we, but we we work on 20 year uh lease increments and um as for your point on on silvopasture and and the ability to co-mingle uh animals trees and and grass or crops together um that that is our north star um when when you look at the research uh, the research is clear that when you add trees to crop systems, you get a number of benefits to uh, soils, water quality, biodiversity, and, and the broader environment. And then on top of that, when you add animals to uh, trees and crops together, those benefits are, are amplified. And so uh, it is our goal to create um, uh, another fund that will be focused on silvopasture. Uh, for this first fund, we are solely focused on uh, alley cropping. That's right. Keep it simple. And and there are some, you know, to your point, there, there are some real complex complexities that come just from an operational standpoint, mm -hmm. a farm management standpoint of, of integrating Don't animals, trees. crops yeah. and trees together. <laughs> but there, there's also regulatory complexities that, that come from that, right? Harvesting uh, the chestnuts. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So the, yeah, there, there, are, there are a number of challenges, but it's funny when I go to conferences, um, I, 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 I always think ahead of time that I'm going to be talking about uh, alley cropping the whole time. And the vast majority of time, the, the conversations that I'm involved in are actually based around silvopasture. There, there's a real demand and interest from a lot of stakeholders out there on uh, implementing silvopasture uh, projects. And, and we, we share in that excitement. Uh, it's something that we want to pursue longer term. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of dimensions there. One you can do, and I'm going to ask how the tree, like the tree lanes look and how diverse they are. And of course, that might depend actually on, on the farmer as well, but there's a lot to say for integrating trees as uh, tree hay, as, as a good friend of the show likes to call it, um, <laughs> like integrating uh, the leaves at the right time of the year, at the right time of the tree, et, et cetera, et cetera, into the diet of, of animals. Um, and then you get a whole other level of, of, of health benefits and a whole other level of actually benefits for the tree as well. Of course, 
very complex to manage. There are people to do it amazingly, but how to scale that is going to be a challenge for fund number two, but super interesting from a carbon perspective, water perspective, animal welfare perspective, quality perspective, et cetera, et cetera. And probably if you do it well, your trees go, grow faster um, as well. But so how do a tree range, like how do we, you already visualized it a bit, but um, going from a core and soil rotation, I think we can sort of understand how that looks like if we close our eyes, but how do you, does your average uh, farm, your average acre or, or tens of acres look like if we had to visualize that with the chestnuts, but what grows in between, how, how do you, how does it feel, smell and, and uh, look like if you, you are there at the right time of year, of course. Yes, for sure. Uh so we fully admit uh, in the spirit of uh, uh, simplicity, um, our initial approach to these projects uh, is to plant uh, fairly concentrated plots of chestnut trees. Um, so we, we plant uh, chestnut trees on a, a 20 foot by 20 foot grid uh, on, our, on our fields, which is, is fairly concentrated. There, there isn't a ton of room in the alleyways to say grow a corn crop, right? So we, we almost default into a hay crop, um, but we're, we're doing that for simplicity purposes, as well as we know early on here that we have to get the financial return profile right. Um, you know, in order to expand agroforestry specifically and regenerative agriculture more broadly, the, the return profile has to be there for risk capital that is coming into the market and offering up uh, capital upfront to initiate and expand uh, these practices. And if you do not get a financial return back to those initial investors, you really run the risk of uh, taking two steps back after a, a foot uh, uh, forward in trying to implement these re regenerative agriculture practices. So we knew that we had to get the financial return profile right. We knew that we had to de-risk our first fund as much as possible. And because of that, we plant on a, uh, a fairly concentrated grid. The, the good thing about that is what we're doing to that, that old corn and bean land is we're, we're quickly rehabilitating it because of the number of trees that are, that are going in the ground on a, a per acre basis. Um, and it's, it's really cool. You, you talked about what does it smell like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? Uh, you know, anyone listening to this, I, I, I encourage you to please reach out to me. We, we do a lot of tours uh, on our, our pilot farm in northern Kentucky. It's a, a very easy place to get to. Uh, Cincinnati Airport is, is right there. You can fly in direct from London. You can fly in direct from a lot of places in the U.S. And uh, the tour that we do is really, really um, interesting. We start uh, by looking at uh, a field of, of corn or, or soybeans, uh, and, and you go and you visit and you really don't hear much, you know, you, you walk the field and while you might see crops in the ground or you might see a, a bare field that's that's being prepared for the, the following spring, you don't hear much. It, it's silent. Uh, it's calm. It's it's uh, there isn't much going on. Uh, and then from there, we we take uh, our participants uh, to um, a field. Uh, that we've prepped with some with some biodiversity planting, so some some uh, 
tree or plant species that are that are native to that local area. Uh, and, and we're getting the ground ready for our chestnut plantings. And there's a little bit more life. You can hear some crickets and some birds here and there. Um, and then from there, we move on to a third field, which has our, our trees on it, you know, one and two year old trees. Uh, there's, there's grass, you know, hay in between. And it is loud. It, it's incredible. I mean, you you walk onto that that third. Have field. you made videos about it or like comparison? It would be great for like shorts on on Instagram, etc. Just to because I, I remember it's a soundscape. I'm gonna blank on the name, but there was a or there is a vision. No, uh, an audio artist. Sorry that that captured forest and original audio in in nature areas, and then also could show, even though you couldn't see it, it was in a, in a jungle area, you couldn't see the difference, but some have been, had been selectively logged. You could hear the difference and he made it visual. So on a huge wall around you, there were all the different lines of the, the leopard of all the birds, etc. And you could see physically like the difference when the logging company came in, which was very sustainable, which was selectively logging, but the, let's say the sound had changed and had actually diminished quite a bit. So they made the sound. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes and description below, because I don't remember the name. And I think it's like the great nature orchestra or something like that, but I'll, I'll find it. But anyway, have you thought about how to bring it to the people that cannot, even though it's easy to visit, but still, uh, it's far for many uh, to, to bring that to people just to, sh to show or, or let people listen to the difference. You know, it, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because we have, and, and we need to do more of it. And we actually, um, we're, we're soon going to release our first impact report for the, the 2023 year. And we talk about uh, MRV, right? Monitoring, reporting, and verification, which is what a lot of investors and, and other stakeholders want to see uh, from, from impact funds like ours is what, what impact are we having? How are we measuring it? And we've talked about the different ways that we can uh, measure and report on biodiversity and that that auditory piece is going to be uh, one of them. And, and I'll add too, you know, if you go to our um, our page on LinkedIn, Agroforestry Partners, uh, one of the very first first videos that we posted uh, was right after I joined last year in June. It was my first farm visit. We got to that third farm, uh, like I mentioned, and my jaw just dropped. I, I could not believe how loud it was. I was actually having a hard time uh, hearing a, another member of our team speak from a, a few yards away. And I, I just, I took my phone out and I just scanned the landscape for about 15 to 20 seconds and took a video and it's, it's so loud. And we were all kind of just giggling. I, I mean, it just brings this like this raw happiness out of you. Um, but it, it shows very clearly um, the nature and biodiversity benefits that can come from just putting native species and, and trees in the ground on traditional farmland. It's really cool. Yeah, I'll definitely put the, the link below. And I found uh, the one, it's the Great Animal Orchestra of Bernie Krauss. See it live if you can. I think it's traveling. I don't exactly know where, uh, but if you uh, have the ability to do that, I mean, definitely listen to this one uh, as well and, and do interact because it makes it, yeah, makes it so much more um, visual and real if you, if you hear it. And then how long just like practicalities in terms of for the investors in, in a fund like this, 
I don't know chestnuts too well. I know they're, uh, the, uh, we've talked to the propagate guys before and it's the tree that solves everything. Obviously Google that if you don't know why. Um, but how long does it take before chestnuts start to, to be, let's say relevant and interesting from a revenue perspective? And, and how, how does that fit into, let's say, um, traditional or less traditional uh, financing structures? Yeah, I'll, I'll echo what you just said. Uh, and until I joined agroforestry partners, I, I really only knew chestnuts from uh, um, what we would do every Christmas time in our family, which is put them in the oven and uh, hit them, pull them yeah. out and peel them and eat them. They're, they're, they're incredibly tasty. Uh, but once a year I would interact with them and that was about it. I, I didn't know much about the trees or the, or the crop itself more broadly. Um, chestnuts solve a ton of problems uh, uh, from a nature standpoint and from an economic standpoint, uh, chestnut trees have incredible economics behind them uh, between what you're able to purchase them for and then how you're ultimately able to monetize them. Um, so chestnut trees themselves uh, will not begin bearing a commercial harvest until about year seven, eight or nine. Uh, so there is a fairly long lead time uh, from the point of setting the tree in the ground and realizing a commercial harvest where you can uh, sell that product into the marketplace. Now, that being said, they have a fairly low cost profile. Um, you can uh, buy the tree, set it in the ground, make sure that it survives its first, you know, two to three years. And, and there's, there's uh, very little maintenance that comes alongside the tree thereafter. Um, and then your, your, your biggest problem from, from then on, once it starts yielding produce is, uh, how to, uh, how to pick that produce up off the ground, chestnuts fall to the ground. Um, you pick them up and, and bring them to market, but that's kind of your, your biggest problem at that point is how do we harvest, uh, this nut type and then where do we put it into the marketplace? Um, there's, there's good demand. Uh, internationally, I say internationally outside of the United States, there's there's good demand in places like uh, the UK, the Middle East, Asia. Um, in the US itself, it's it's a really small market uh, today, and we're having to think creatively. We're excited about thinking creatively of how to expand the market here. Uh, we think there are a number of other proxies out there, uh, pistachios or one that that come to mind uh, of of uh, nut segments that have really increased demand over time uh, and shown that you can really expand the market. So we're, we're really excited about that aspect of it. And then how long does a, an average chestnut tree, like say yield, like how you're thinking in a hundred, a hundred year horizon. <laughs> so I'm imagining a tree gets there as well. Like what's the, or what, when do you replace, or is it one of those that once it goes, it just keeps on going. I know there are chestnuts in Sicily, in Italy that I think it's a multiple one. I I'm, Top of my head, 2000 year old, probably older. Um, but how, how, how are you modeling that even? Or what, what's your, what's your, what are you targeting? You're spot on. I was just about to name the, the same tree that's been around for thousands of years and is still producing chestnuts, which is um, so incredible. Um, uh, chestnut trees on average that, you know, you'll, you'll definitely get decades worth of uh, production. Uh, we usually hedge by saying, you know, over 50 years, five zero years. Uh, but but the, the hope is that uh, these trees will be able to produce for 
for over a hundred years. And then are there ways, like you say, seven, eight, nine years, like are there ways you're looking at how to speed that up? Like if you can take one or two years off um, in terms of how to plan, what to plan it with, how to prepare, like are there ways to, to bring that forward? Because that's going to change your model quite a bit. It's a really good question. Uh, we, we think about that, but it's not a huge priority for us. But when we talk to our investors, it's just cheap um, to get them in. So let's, yeah, that's right. as many. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and we, we, we tell them at the same time, we say, look, this is a long-term investment for you. We're, we're not trying to um, cut any corners or we're not trying to quote unquote hack anything uh, that could potentially mess with your investment. We all know that this is a long-term investment. Let's do it right so that these trees produce for years and years and years and keep a very solid return in place for you for decades or the ability to sell your share to someone else that wants to participate in that future income stream. But I, I will say this, our folks at Propagate take this very seriously. When, when we convert uh, a corn or a bean field, uh, it would be very rare that we would go straight into corn or, or soybean stubble without prepping the, the land. Uh, so traditionally what Propagate and its partners will do is they'll, they'll come in, um, they'll, they'll clear the land, um, they'll deep rip it if it needs to, to be deep ripped. Um, they'll put certain soil amendments in place. They'll, they'll sow uh, grass coverage in place across the field. Um, and all of that gets done, you know, six, 12, 18 months ahead of time uh, of the trees even going in the ground so that um, we're giving these trees a chance. Remember, they're, they're going into soils that are um, void of, of many microorganisms. Uh, many times uh, the land is pretty beat up. And so we want to make sure that we're prepping the land in the right way, giving these trees a real fighting chance. Um, and, and we know that long term if we prep that ground in the right way, um, our trees should be healthier than not, and they should uh, hopefully produce earlier and, and more relative to, to not doing that. A funny example is this past fall, we did a, a farm tour with some investors, and we were going by a field that had uh, some, some one to two-year-old trees on it. And uh, we, we were talking about something. It, it didn't matter. I can't remember at the time, but we were walking by this one uh, two-year-old tree and it had uh, three or four chestnut burrs on it. And, and for those of, of you that don't know chestnuts all that well, uh, a, a burr uh, grows on, on the, the tree and, and usually contains about two to three chestnuts inside uh, of itself. And, uh, you know, there, there were two, three, four burrs on this two-year-old tree. And we were like, wow, you know, kind of making the joke of, look, our, our trees are already yielding. And that was just a really exciting moment for us to, to see that we're, we're hopefully doing this the right way. Our, our young trees are in good shape and, uh, and we're giving them the best chances of success going forward. And do investors bring up the point of, of changing climate and, and climate weirdness, I think is the, the, the right term we've been living through the last couple of years or probably longer as well. Like, is that a, um, a concern for them? Like, how are these trees that are going to be there 50 plus years going to handle or deal with, um, with, with not the same that we modeled for, let's say, or not the same climate or type of, of weather? Absolutely. And, and this is a really important point. Uh, 
when, when we have been having conversations with investors, um, one of their primary concerns is the changing climate uh, in, in the decades ahead um, and, and how uh, more volatile weather as a result of that might impact their investment. One of the, the, the main avenues that we've taken to addressing that risk at a, at a broad level is to uh, geographically diversify our, our projects. Um, so this first hub in Kentucky, uh, we will plant uh, probably a total of around 3,000 acres of our uh, intended 10,000 acre goal. Uh, and then we will move on to a, a different geographic hub uh, and, and try and replicate that, plant another 3,000 acres or so, 2,500 acres. And we'll continue to do that in different geographic hubs in order to reduce risk. Um, the other side of that uh, coin is when we've gone and talked to farmers themselves, they they have those same concerns. Uh, and so we, we've done a couple different things. We've gone out and talked to um, uh, existing chestnut growers here in the U.S., some of the more prominent existing chestnut growers. We've we've listened to them about what impacts their trees and production on a year to year basis. Uh, a lot of them complain of, you know, early year frost or, or late year frost. Uh, they complain of deer. Deer are a big problem that can take 20 to 30 percent of your crop if you're not careful each year. Uh, chestnut growers also complain of uh, dicamba drift. Uh, dicamba, of course, is a, a chemical that a lot of uh, traditional row crop uh, farmers use to suppress um, pests and, and weeds on their fields. And uh, that can drift into uh, chestnut orchards and, and hurt the trees and hurt their production. Uh, so we've, we've listened to a lot of this commentary. And, and one of the other things that we're doing to protect uh, investors from climactic changes and, and other pests is uh, we're, we're in the process of working with the USDA on setting up a, uh, a chestnut tree and crop insurance product uh, that can protect our farmers and protect our investors. Because right now, while the, while the United States does have many different uh, crop insurance products in place, uh, chestnuts are not currently covered by federal crop insurance. And so we want to make sure that we get a, a product in place for our investors and, and our other stakeholders to make sure that their investment is, is protected. And in these investor trips and, and talking to investors, which you do all the time, like what are the biggest education pieces, let's say for them, like where do you see, I'm not saying the biggest missing links, but where, because I'm imagining it's a lot of education as well, just to make them understand maybe they come from the timber space maybe they come from the agriculture space and then they meet somewhere in the middle and it's just weird or different than what they expected or what they're used to. Like what are the biggest education uh, hubs you have to uh, um, go through, let's say, to get somebody to the, to the finish line? It's, uh, it's so true. Uh, I can remember uh, one investor trip in particular, this, this very, very smart individual um, that uh, was was working for a corporation that is trying to offset its uh, global footprint. And so uh, they're making investments in nature to try and do that. And so he was brought on by the firm uh, to try and uh, 
make some of those nature-based investments globally. And he has a forestry background. And again, this, this, this individual is extremely intelligent, very, very smart. Um, but when we were walking around the, the farm, he said, Brett, I just don't know what I'm looking at right now. I, I, don't, I don't really know chestnuts, right? I don't know chestnut trees. I don't really know alley cropping and, and how trees interact with uh, hay or anything else going on. I don't understand the economics of everything. I don't understand how to analyze my risk. And, and we spent a long time going through the due diligence process with him. Um, and, and I just remember him talking about what a, what a challenge it was for him to analyze this, even though he had the, the forestry background. Um, and, and we, you know, that, that same situation gets replicated time and time again. Uh, so what we've done is we've realized that um, offering, uh, or, or how should I put this? We, we've realized that offering a fund that overcomes the financial and the technical hurdles to agroforestry adoption and, and regenerative agriculture adoption is not enough. We've realized that there's a third hurdle, hurdle, a, a cultural hurdle, where we really need to educate um, the investment community. Uh, we need to educate uh, the farming community, community, um, and we need to educate society writ large on regenerative agriculture and, and why it's needed. So if you go to our website, you'll see that we have a lot of research papers in place. Uh, uh, I spend a, a fair amount of my time um, composing and, and producing those, those research papers to, to put in front of investors, to put in front of other stakeholders to help them analyze uh, what we're doing and, and make an informed decision. Um, and then uh, the other side of that is, is just walking investors through specifically what we're doing in our projects and why they might differ to what they read in the news, right? Uh, what, I'll, what, I'll, what I'll kind of end on in this specific response is consider the really difficult year that the carbon markets went through last year, the voluntary carbon markets. And if you were to read about any project associated with uh, selling carbon offsets, right? Yeah, trees. You would probably have a bad taste in your mouth or you come into that conversation um, very, very wary or critical. And what we've tried to do is is showcase why our projects are different, why they are reliable. Um, and, and we've tried to to give full visibility and transparency into what we're doing. We're, we're not trying to hide anything. Um, and we encourage investors to, you know, if you have a normal three month due diligence cycle and you want to go to six months, that's fine. We just want to make sure that you're comfortable with what you're investing in and that you fully understand what our project entails. And, and so how important is the payments for ecosystem services in your model? Uh, like the carbon piece and maybe others, but how, how fundamental, or is it a nice icing on the cake or is it a fundamental piece of what makes it interesting? Yeah, you know, it, it, I would characterize it more as icing on the cake. Um, I don't want to minimize its importance. Um, when we talk to investors, it's, it's extremely clear that uh, almost every single investor that we care about, or excuse, excuse me, every single investor that we talk to cares about the carbon uh, uh, sequestration piece of our projects. 
they care about uh, the a biodiversity. Trees plus soil or either? Yes, or yes, both. They, they care about uh, biomass sequestration and um, soil sequestration. Um, uh, they care about the biodiversity piece. Uh, almost every investor wants there to be a biodiversity element to our projects, which there is. Um, and then they uh, they care about offtake. <laughs> they care, you know, who's going to buy your chestnuts? What are they going to pay? Those are those are usually the conversations that we're having with investors. And from from a carbon standpoint, it's small. It's it's less than five percent of our projected return for investors, but it, it still matters from a, a quality yeah. standpoint. Yep. And so switching to some questions we always like to ask switching. I mean, it's not a, it's not a massive switch, actually. There's, there's not a, a huge leap here. Um, but let's say we're, we're still an investor education piece. So we're doing this in front of, uh, let's say a live audience. I love to use that as an example. The regular listeners will be tired about me saying, let's do this in a theater in New York or in some kind of financial center. Um, and the, the room is full of uh, financial types, either investing their own money or, or responsible for our pension funds, et cetera. Um, of course, they're excited about uh, agroforestry after this evening. We're on stage, um, but if there's, uh, but we also know you forget most things after an evening. It's not that things stick, and we want them to remember one thing, one seed that we plant uh, the next day when they go to work, uh, when they go into their, into their family office, when they go back to to their desk. Let's say if there's one thing you want them to to remember of that of the evening, what would that be? And this relates specific, specifically to agroforestry investment? I mean, in general, if they had a great time, yes. No, but I would say specifically of the conversation we, we had on stage about agroforestry investments, what would be the seed you want to plant in their, in their mind? You know, I, I think um, <clears throat> for us, it, it's a number of things. But if I had to pick one thing, um, it's, it's the true power of trees. Uh, our, our propagate people like to talk in terms of how trees are the answer, they say. <clears throat> and uh, what was the question? Trees, is, trees are the yeah, answer, regardless. Whatever yeah. the question is, uh, trees are the answer. Uh, no, and I, I mean, uh, they come at it from a, a focal point of, you know, a, a lot of the guys at, at Propagate, they, they started their company um, because they cared a lot about healthy food and nutrition, um, a, a number of key personnel uh, uh, surrounding the fund really care about nutrition as it relates to their own individual health concerns. And they're driven by a, a core desire to create more nutrient dense, healthy foods for society. <clears throat> um, and when you, a, a statistic that we like to talk about internally a lot is, you know, that the average mineral content of vegetables in the United States has fallen anywhere from 5% to 40%, uh, depending on the crop relative to 1950. So people today are not getting the same nutrition from their food relative to their parents and their grandparents. And if you take a look at why this is happening, it's because it's our soils themselves are depleted of nutrients and they're thus not able to fortify our foods at the same levels anymore. Um, you know, our, our farming practices are, are producing more food, uh, but that food is becoming lower quality. And so you, we always say, you know, what fixes this? And the answer is trees, you know, trees and their their root structures have such a wide range of benefits for our soils, the food that's grown in our soils or, or that relies on our soils. 
water quality, biodiversity. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, and in the process, when you plant those trees, they they offer a wide range of of income benefits for farmers and, and their communities as well. So, you know, we, we coach people a lot when they invest in regenerative agriculture to bring a narrow focus, right? There's, there's so much to do across agri- agriculture writ large, and you can honestly lead yourself into analysis paralysis um, when you try and, you know, evaluate everything. But we really always come back to trees by saying, if you want to have a truly wide impact uh, and make a little bit of money along the way, plant some trees. Yeah, we've had somebody, I think it was the title of the interview, even Felipe Passini on, on Syntropic Agroforestry, when in doubt, plant more trees. That was the, the answer to almost every question. Um, and, and I think it still holds true today. And so flipping the, the conversation, what if you would be, I mean, you already gave the 100 million answer. Like if I had 100 million, we could put it to work uh, tomorrow or today in, in agroforestry. What if we... Uh, opt it up a bit and go to a 10 X uh, fund like that. What if you were in charge of a, uh, of a billion dollar investment fund tomorrow? It could be extremely long-term like we don't, but it has to be invested. Um, how would you, I'm not looking for dollar amounts. I'm thinking, I'm more asking, how would you prioritize? What would you focus on the seedling side on some mechanization on lease, lease structures or technology? Like what, what would be your main uh, buckets you would invest in if you had to put that to work could be outside agroforestry as well. Actually, if you have a completely different uh, angle, if you uh, would be tackling food and agriculture, let's, let's keep it in food and egg. What would you be tackling if you had a billion dollars to, to put to work? Yeah. Uh, good question. I'm going to sound like a broken record here because I'm the, the tree guy, but uh, if I had a billion dollars, <laughs> would have been amazing if you said seaweed. No, that would be just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if I had a billion dollars, I'd I'd probably uh, plant about 300 million trees uh, on farms next to crops and animals. But your, your question is actually an important one because we're getting while- those questions now. I'm, I'm not like I when I started seven years ago, I would, I was predicting the large significant investors getting into the space and start i will ask these questions at some point so let's get prepared for mechanisms and infrastructure i would call it and technology i'm seeing financial structures like yourself as a technology i think the definition of tech is way too narrow um so how do we absorb that interest when it comes in those resources and i think a billion is a lot but not a lot at the same time sorry to interrupt yep. so it's an important no. question i think because it's coming and we need to and it's there already and we need to get ready to to chop it in pieces and um, make big money small and put it to work in the soil no it, it's it's such a great point because um I, when you consider some of the estimates that are out there um from consultancies and other market watchers on the amount of money that it's going to take to transition to regenerative agriculture globally, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So a, a billion dollars comparatively is not that much, which is crazy to say. Um, <clears throat> so um, if you if you have a billion dollars, we, we firmly believe uh, within our fund and across our partner set that we should be planting trees next to crops and animals. Like I said, it it offers the most bang for your buck. Um, but I will say this, I'll go further by saying two things. 
I, I, I kind of jokingly said that I would plant 300 million trees. I, I would color that further by saying that I would plant those trees in uh, mature, developed markets as opposed to emerging markets. And that might not be a very popular thing to say, but I, I think we're getting it a bit wrong by trying to force regenerative practices into emerging markets where they might not make sense. I mean, consider um, the United States, consider certain countries within the EU, uh, Canada, Brazil, Argentina. These are like true breadbaskets of the world. Uh, these countries produce a large majority of the food that the world depends on. And, and we already know that there's a ton of food waste that happens downstream. And that's a, that's a completely separate podcast for you. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that we need to be hitting these, these food production centers hard and making them more regenerative in place uh, to try and address uh, some of the, the negative externalities that come from, from food production in, in those key places. Um, and then the second thing I'll add is uh, I think many of us are focused on the upstream parts of the market. When we think regen ag, we think upstream. We think we have to get this done on farm and it's on farm, on farm, on farm. And that's all we think about. And I, I think that the smart investor is going to start to think downstream. Uh, the smart investor is going to start to think offtake. Because while most of us are, are concentrated upstream and, and doing what we can to transition fields and farms, we can't forget that we're, we're going to need to deliver those products uh, downstream yeah. to the consumer, right? And there needs to be supply chains set up to do that. Uh, consumers need to understand their choices, Um you know, education needs to take place at, at each step of the value chain. There's there's a ton of work that needs to take place off farm as well. Uh, and, and at least in my experience, um, there aren't many people talking about that at this point. And is that why, I mean, you mentioned cargo a few times, why they're looking into that? Because I'm imagining they've been working with the same farmers on their soy corn rotation. And, and so... They seem to be getting behind chestnuts very clearly. Otherwise, like what, what is their role apart from introducing you to the farmer? Um, are they buying the hay? Are they buying the chestnuts or just interested in, are they financing it? What, what's their, um, their interest in this, um, in this strategy? Yeah, this is a great discussion topic. So specific to- I waited an hour and three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, specific to agroforestry partners in Cargill, um, Cargill is is uh, solely focused for the time being on connecting agroforestry partners with farmers. Um, they're they're economically incentivized in the fund to do just that. Um, down the road, I, I, I think there will be potential uh, for for Cargill to be a, a separate partner in the sense of offtake or or whatever it is and. They can they can choose whether that's uh, for them specifically or or for another market participant relative to the role that they play in in the marketplace as 
as one of the big uh, uh, grain traders around the world. But the reason I like your question so much, and this goes back to my days um, uh, on the dark side, once again, as an equity research analyst, you know, as I was leaving equity research, uh, a lot of the food and, and ag companies that I had had relationships with and, and continue to have relationships with, they were talking at that time and, and they're still very much talking today about um, taking a backwards view into their into their value chain, into their supply chain and and vertically integrating from the sense of of, of a backwards um, uh, integration. Right. Um, I think you mentioned it uh, closer to the top of this call, which was, you know, companies are, are having to increasingly look back through their supply chains. I think we were talking about it in terms of Tyson Foods and make sure that they're shoring up all parts of their value chain because of the risk that occurs to them uh, from that standpoint. And increasingly, you know, we're seeing food and ag companies look back through their supply chains and, and either vertically integrate themselves or work with their supply chain uh, partners to become more sustainable. I mean, this is this is critical for them, uh, for companies to do this work. So I, I know Cargill and, and many other food and ag companies are, are increasingly looking back throughout their uh, supply chains and working with partners to, to implement these um, more sustainable practices. And um, I think that's gonna be a key piece of the industry going forward. I, I think those companies are gonna spend more and more money, make more and more investment in regenerative agriculture. And that's a very good thing because uh, just taking 1% of, of sales for, for the food and ag industry and, and plowing that into regenerative agriculture Pun would intended. have a, a meaningful yeah. impact. And what's holding it back in, apart from the funding, you said if we, from the investment side, is there certain technologies you would love to have? Are there, I mean, the farmers seem to be ready, or at least you have more farmers that want to work with you than you currently can do the acreage. So that, I'm not saying we're not going to hit a ceiling anytime soon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for now, at least that seems to be covered. Um, what, what, what are like, what is high on your list, like harvesting equipment or uh, better markets, local, like um, local markets in the US, would that really change a big thing? Or are the foreign markets interesting enough, even though with transport, et cetera, some costs might be added. Like what are, what is, what is holding you back um, beyond the things we already discussed? Yeah. So my answer will be mostly specific to chestnuts, and I, I apologize yeah, yeah. for that, but that's uh, the world it's that the we're tree, living then, in. Like the answer is the tree, <laughs> and then within the trees, it's always the chestnuts. Yeah. That's right. That's right. We are, we are narrowly focused on chestnuts right what now. What was the question? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll say you, you touched on most of it. Uh, the, the equipment is key. Um, we and, and our farming partners have realized that there, there isn't a great solution set when it comes to equipment for alley cropping in the United States today. Um, uh, Europeans are a little bit further along than us. And, and I know we've made some trips to Europe to learn from uh, what Europeans are, are doing and, and how they've modified farming equipment uh, to operate in, in more narrow ranges or, or tighter spaces when it comes to agroforestry specifically. Um, our, our farm partner in Kentucky is very engaged and to his credit, 
he's been manipulating his own equipment in a really interesting way uh, to be able to give us more efficiencies and um, um, more optimized management schedules for our uh, projects. But we we need uh, new equipment for this type of farming to be sure. And then the other thing that I think you kind of touched on was we're realizing that when we bring regenerative products to market, we're probably going to need to charge a premium for them. We fully believe that consumers will pay a premium for those products, uh, but we need a, a supply chain. We need a delivery mechanism um, to bring them to market. If you consider chestnuts specifically, we don't want to mix our regenerative chestnuts with regular chestnuts in the value chain. We don't want to mix our regenerative chestnuts with commodity grain in the distribution channel. So we need to set up partnerships, coalitions, um, delivery mechanisms to get those products to market uh, so that the consumer can make informed choices. And the last thing I'll add um, that, that touches on your question more broadly outside of chestnuts is um, regulation and, and policymaking. Um, we need uh, governments to step in uh, either at the local, state, or, or federal level um, in, in creative ways to make sure that farmers are uh, incentivized to, to make these changes and that consumers are protected uh, from, you know, bad actors that might come in and, and, and try and greenwash in certain ways or try and commingle products. Um, uh, one, of the, the, one of the key things there is uh, farmers today, if they take their land out of traditional row crops and put it into regenerative crops like chestnuts, for instance, or anything um, else, th yeah. anything else, they, they can lose some really important um, uh, support payments and, and systems that they're used to relying on. Um, and and it's it's a problem in that once they make the change, uh, uh, traditionally, at least here in the U.S., they lose those support payments uh, and systems forever. It's it's very hard to get them back. Wow. So we, we think that. Uh, you know, politicians here in the U.S. need to pay attention to this um, and, and need to incentivize um, farmers to make the change and, and protect them along the way. And it could be one of those, but it could be something completely different. As a final question, if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing overnight, what would that be in the full food and agriculture space? I mean, could, we have heard a lot of different things all animals outside we've heard stop with any chemical inputs we've heard policy changes we've heard better flavor people tasting i mean it's it's really dream big and wide um what would that be if you change one thing overnight mm -hmm. um you know something that i care a lot about as i've learned about uh soils and and agronomy and the importance of soils is i i would take my magic wand and I'd, I'd wave it at the ground and I would uh, return uh, a full suite of micro microorganisms to the soils. I, I think, uh, you know, we can we can fix this problem of, of losing uh, bacteria and fungi in the soil, um, but it's going to take a coordinated approach and, and it's going to take time. Um, but to me, the, the loss of microorganisms in our soils 
is probably one of the most important issues of our day. Um, one of the most unsustainable things that we could be doing in life is feeding ourselves less and less nutritious food. You know, we, we're, we're kind of inadvertently killing ourselves, so to speak, over time due to our, our current farming practices and, and our declining quality of soils. And I know it's a really hard concept to grasp because of the fact that we're, we're producing larger and larger quantities of food each year, um, but, but the food itself has hidden consequences. So if I could change that dynamic overnight, uh, I think that would be my number one priority. Thank you so much. I think that's the first time somebody mentioned uh, specifically flipping the switch, let's say, in, in terms of biology um, effects in soil overnight, um, which would lead to yeah, an amazing set of consequences, obviously. So I want to be conscious of your time as well. Thank you so much for this deep dive into finance trees, chestnuts, and uh, let's all remember the answer is always a tree, and usually that tree is a chestnut. So thank you so much for the work you do for uh, leaving the dark side and, and coming and bringing that experience and, and that knowledge into, uh, let's say, the regenerative side of things, whatever that might be. So thank you for the work you do, and thank you for coming on here and sharing about it. Oh, thank you, Kieran. It was my pleasure to be here and, and my pleasure to be in front of you and all your listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.